0: Welcome to Trash Compactor, I'm Josh. As many listeners know, we're fans of multiple storytelling universes, not just Star Wars. And today, we're going to be discussing the connections between Star Wars and another long-running fictional adventure series with sci-fi fantasy flavor, Doctor Who. And joining me today to talk Doctor Who and Star Wars is returning guest, the engineer of the Game of Rassilon podcast, the best Doctor Who RPG podcast out there, Michael Nixon.
1: Hello, and uh, welcome back to... actually, me. Oh, hold on. Uh, Anyway, moving on.
0: Moving on. (laughs) Um, And also, joining us, first-time guest. She's a comedian, writer, author of such books as Exploring Tatooine, an Illustrated Guide, and one-time incarnation of the Doctor herself and current GM of the Game of Rassilon podcast. Please welcome Riley Silverman. How you doing, Riley? Hello.
2: Hi, how are you all?
0: I'm very excited to talk to both of you because maybe it's more common than it used to be, but I don't know many crossover Star Wars Doctor Who fans who are as into it as the two of you are. Um, maybe that's more and more common these days. I don't know. What's your sense of the crossover in Star Wars Doctor Who?
1: Well, there's going to be a lot Just... more soon. Um... Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we can look we'll into that later, but. Gonna I, well, I was going to say, stuff.
2: I think your thing your, your problem is you. there's not that many Doctor Who fans in the, at least in the America. there are a lot of Doctor Who fans, let me before I get, but like in the American sense, I feel like it had a brief jump in popularity in America at one point that kind of then tapered off again. And I think otherwise your Doctor Who fans, I mean, I, before I get people mad at me, there are plenty of American Doctor Who fans, but it's always been kind of this niche, smaller fandom compared to other big it's kind of like like Warhammer versus d d right like there are people in America who play Warhammer but I wouldn't say the Warhammer audience is to the level that the d d D&D audience is and so on or like Babylon 5 versus Star Trek fans like it's said the fans are there and they uh, are mighty but they are their very cloistered group and there are crossovers of course but that might be why it feels that way too I would I would say I think that I think that most Doctor Who fans that I encounter are Star Wars fans as well, or at least are appreciative of Star Wars. I don't find very many Doctor Who fans who abjectly dislike Star Wars, whereas like I think it's more that Star Wars fans. I mean, Star Wars is essentially one of the biggest brands of franchise titles in the world. So I think yes. that, like, you're going to have a lot more Star Wars fans who have never, ever seen of or, or barely heard of Doctor Who. Like, they think of Doctor Who as the guy who throws right. trash cans in a police, in a trash, in a phone booth, you know, so. Right, right. Which is not inaccurate. Right. No, it's not.
0: <laughs> no, that's certainly true. Um, I just want to discuss the literal connections between Star Wars and Doctor Who. I think there are some very clear ones, mainly in terms in of. yeah. <laughs> of set in space sometimes oh, but also well, it's always in space uh,
2: I don't know if you know how space works but literally everywhere is actually well that's sorry true. I'm being an asshole I'm Ooh, sorry we'll I'll stop him. no no oh, no I'll let you do your intro for your segment and
1: stop roasting no me. I'm sorry no I'm you're being absolutely being so
2: mean to you I love it I love it I don't know like, what like about why me. did I
1: invite this person on <laughs> no I'm like uh get him Riley yes <laughs> just getting the popcorn ready it's over yeah. here in the corner So fun.
0: um but yeah like uh, the thing that I think of when I think of like the Venn diagram, the, the crossover section of Doctor Who and Star Wars, I think of Julian Glover and Michael Sheard, the two actors who you know made careers out of being villainous to Star Wars fans and Indiana Jones fans. But there are a lot of actors because Star Wars, the original trilogy in particular, was shot in the U.K., and the coterie of actors in the UK is—I don't want to say smaller than the US—in a derogatory way, it's, it's, but it's incestual. sort of incestual.
2: It's a lot of the same people get used to the same productions over and over again. Yeah,
0: right. So you see a lot of the same faces on British TV and um, for an American production shooting in England, they just say, "Okay, like who do you got that's like you know six foot and throw him in the Darth Vader suit?" Hey, do you want to be Darth Vader or Chewbacca? I guess I'll be the baddie because it sounds it sounds like it's a more interesting part. It's sort of that I'm stuff. not
2: sure that's how the casting process went, but I do like that, that you imagine that's how it went. <laughs> no, like no, that actually is how it went. Like, that really? actually is how it went. Yeah. They just went, which, hey, you're tall. Which tall suit do you want to wear? Because that's, yeah, that's amazing to me because that's the way people on the internet seem to think casting works nowadays for most people. <laughs> like I remember when they were talking about finding a replacement for an unnamed Star Wars character because unnamed actor was unceremoniously let go of the series of The Mandalorian. Oh, yes. And people were talking about replacements. And people were like, why don't you just cast someone and then ask him who they ask them who they want to play? I'm like, Cause that's not how casting works. Like, there's a script, and then you cast the people to play the characters in the script. You don't just go, hey, you look like you could be in space. Who do you want to be, kid? <laughs> like-
0: yeah, no, that's true. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, just as a sidebar, one of the great frustrations of... Participating in Star Wars fandom and Doctor Who fandom is the lack the of fans. understanding of Sorry,
2: how, yes, well, yes, no, well, <laughs> the so, biggest problem. So also, with the fandom is the fandom it, exactly the fandom. That is
1: well, literally how I feel.
2: <laughs> it's not the
0: biggest problem with fans online, but like um, I would say racism
2: probably is the biggest problem with fans online. Racism, probably. sexism combined. Yes, I thing.
0: would agree with that. So, um, but one of the problems with fans online, one of the, the problems, is not also
2: is... a systemic problem with society. Yes,
0: right. Yes, yes, yes. It's just a fundamental lack of understanding of how film and television is made. So, so, yes. so you get into you get into arguments about like you know why something is a certain way or not a certain way, and it's like why didn't they just hire so and so to do
2: this? Like, duh. It's so. St- it's like well, you know, <laughs> like that's not how it works. It's like uh, it's like th- you th- don't just. <laughs> the way people, when whatever Doctor Who has new casting coming out, the way people talk about who they should have cast to play whatever characters, I'm like, you have no idea how these shows work or what budgets they have or where. Like, you're not going to get these A-list actors to come mm-hmm. and film a show that was funded on public money in the UK for like a ten-month shoot. I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. No, totally. I
0: mean, so I was going to discuss this at the end, but we might as well talk about it now. I think last week or the week before, a distribution deal was announced between uh, BBC Worldwide and Disney Plus for the new seasons of Doctor Who for the specials next year and uh, Series 14, the debut of the, I guess we're calling him the 15th 15. Doctor
2: you know? yep. uh, Yeah. 15th, yeah. Shooty Um
0: uh, yeah, which is weird that I, I didn't think that they were actually really going to commit that hard to the bit that David Tennant is now the 10th Doctor and the 14th Doctor. So I thought that they were okay. going to pull a War Doctor thing and,
2: and be like, yeah, but that's not the numbering. I think, well, I think the thing is that the, the couple of thoughts on that are that, first of all, like the numbering we give the Doctor is really just an arbitrary, like, this is the actor yes. who played it for this amount of time. And I think that's what like, people get like, thrown off and they're like, well, actually, you know, they're like the 17th Doctor because you have to count the hand and you have to count the Metacrisis. <laughs> the time. I'm like, no, you don't, because it's not its not in story. It's just what we call right. it. So I think they're between, like, what I would say, like, I don't know if I think the fourth chapter is so much a bit as much as I think it's, like, Russell's trying to actively say, this is not just the 10th Doctor again. This is a new Doctor right. who has this right. space. And we'll see if that ends up being the case once the episodes air. Because, I mean, it's kind of hard when you also are going to be having Donna back. Like, is it going to be a, like, repeat of the same Doctor? Or is he going to have different... I was really hoping that he was going to speak with his Scottish voice instead mm-hmm. of his London accent, as a way of making it, this is a different guy.
0: And yeah, like, that's exactly what I mean. Like, like I, because the new Doctor Who magazine came out, I think, a few days ago with interviews with Russell T. Davies and David Tennant and everybody, they are referring to David Tennant as the 14th Doctor and it's sort of, mm-hmm. so So when I say committing to the bit, like, I realized in that moment, like, oh, like, this is not, hey, I'm reverting to the 10th Doctor again for a couple of specials. It's this is a distinct incarnation, and they are really making sure that that, that is clear. Yeah. And they're
2: even having adventures with him already in the Doctor Who magazine as the 14th Doctor. It's, it's going to be wild in a few years when David Tennant starts doing big finish audios as the 14th Doctor <laughs> versus the 10th Doctor.
1: <laughs> oh, no. It's inevitable.
0: It's like this is really uncharted uh, territory for the show, and like how, like yeah, it's not it's not the same doctor returning; it's another incarnation played mm-hmm. by the same actor. Yeah, and so like I mean, that's never really happened before, and what exactly the mechanics of that are are going to be really interesting to divine. Uh, you know, not only just from like an in-universe standpoint, uh, but also, you know, I have to believe thematically. The only thing that I keep returning to in my mind is like, I mean, sure, I mean, first of all, it's the 60th anniversary year, but it's also like we have to engage with the past and indulge the nostalgia hard to say why we have to move forward, right? Like, given who the writer is and like what his inclinations are, and I think his view of the show, you know, is that uh, I think RTD said... Shortly after it was announced that he was returning as showrunner, was that like for him, Doctor Who always has to be new. Yeah. Right. So from the mouth of the man who just said that to then recast an old face. Right. Yeah. Like it has to be for a reason that is in line mm-hmm. with his stated view and plan for the show. So, so that's yeah, the think- only thing that makes sense in my head.
2: Yeah. And I think even like to the degree of he's even doing something different for an anniversary than they normally would do for an anniversary. It does seem like Doctor Who's like go to trick for anniversary specials. And I, I I apologize to all your Star Wars listeners who don't know what we're talking about and have it for about 10 minutes. But for all the anniversary specials, typically you've had you've had your you know, your three doctors, you've had your five doctors, you've had your you know your day at the doctor and so that's like three different specials right there that have been multi-doctor stories you know not not even including the two doctors during the you know a six doctors era and then that's been like the move it's like we're just going to take a couple of doctors and throw them together and make them be the doctor together and have fun with it and so this is like the first time i think where for like a milestone anniversary for the special they're going you know what let's do something a little bit different this time let's do maybe it's unusual we'll see how it actually plays out who knows we may we may end up being a secret mostly doctor story and we don't know it but if until we know that information like i think it's really like it is a unique thing to do as being like what if we have a old face on a new doctor and give him an adventure and you know obviously we're gonna have him check in with an old companion of his but i also do think it's interesting because i'm wondering because i know the disney plus deal didn't come in until this summer and russell was brought back a while ago So, I'm like, how much of this planning for these three specials was done with the idea that we were going to be then having Disney Plus come in? So, or or are these three specials kind of the swan song for the 2005 reboot era of relaunch era of Doctor Who? And then starting with Shooty moving forward, is that kind of this new era of the show where now they have these Disney Plus budgets? Because they were filming the 60th before the Disney Plus deal happened. So I don't know if we're going to yeah. see these, like triple budgets during those episodes versus what we're going to be seeing once 15's era takes over. So I- I'm really fascinated by this future. Right. Well, to speak to what you just said, uh, there was a production diary
0: for the specials in the new issue of Doctor Who magazine, and they showed the cuts of the three specials to the BBC and to Disney Plus for notes. So they've already, so they're already written and well into production, if not completed, by the time this all transpired. So I do believe series 14 or series like 41 or season one or whatever they're going to call it.
2: it I think he's calling it season one or series one. Like, I think it's like that level of like, I, no. I wrote a why I wrote last uh, not spring. again
1: no <laughs> I wrote yeah,
2: Marvel Comics I wrote last spring for Nerdist an article mm-hmm. about the eras of Doctor Who and how I really think that we are the Disney Plus thing changes it a little bit but I or at least maybe changes what's, what it's going to be called I'm guessing now it's going to be called the Disney Plus era but uh, the, or the Disney era or whatever but when I wrote about it I wrote about how there are in my opinion three very strong epochs of Doctor Who. And that is you have the classic series from you know sixty three to eighty nine, and then are those years right, Michael? You, you, yes. Yeah, yeah, it was okay. 63, 89. Then I think you have the wilderness years, which is mm-hmm. that era in between eighty nine two thousand five, where you've got your Paul McGann movie, you've got the the new tar- you know, Target Target to Adventure novels, uh, you got like the beginnings of Big Finish and stuff like that. So you have people scrambling to make Doctor Who in a world where there is no Doctor Who essentially. And then you finally have 2005 and you have this relaunch, which people have called the Modern Who. But Modern Who has now been around for 17 years. It's going to be 18 when the 60th, especially it's getting close to the amount of time that the classic series ran for before it ended. And so, and it was kind of getting long in its tooth as a like revival series as well. So I think it needed a new shakeup. And so when it was announced that Bad Wolf was taking over production from the BBC, it very much felt like, Okay, we now have a, sp- a situation where the, the show is probably going to be very different moving forward, and this might actually be a new era for the show. And then I think that the Disney deal really for me like nailed that to the wall. like this is this is a different time period now.
0: No, no, I think you're totally right, which is sort of in line with, you know, when RTD says, uh, so by the way, the name for the upcoming era that I am partial to myself is RTD2.
2: Well, it fits your podcast for sure. Yeah, yeah. right. The yeah. Uh, well, reason, reason, reason why I'm not calling it that, I've, I've seen people do that and I, I, I like that as a name. The reason why I'm not calling it that is because he's not going to stay forever. He's probably going to stay for like a few years and they hand it off. And I want to have a name that encompasses his era moving forward.
0: No, 100%. Like also, you know, one of the problems that the new show, the modern show has had is there's no obvious successor to the showrunner position. Like for like Russell T Davies got really lucky that he he happened to have someone like Stephen Moffat, who was very clearly that like mixture of really good TV writer, which is like a skill in and of itself, and also really knows Doctor Who and also has I don't want to say irreverence because it's not like like the thing about what you have to do to have a vision for what Doctor Who should be is that you can't be precious about it. It's like you know you need you need to understand it and respect it, but you also need to have the willingness to make it do new things that it has never done before. Because otherwise, it's just it just stays the same and yeah. it gets long in the twos. It's a good segue into Star Wars a little bit.
2: But I would say all I'll ask on that is that like I agree with you on that with Stephen Moffat, and I I will do my best not to badmouth Chris Chibnall too much. But one thing I've really learned from this most recent era, and even towards the end of Moffat's era, even though I. I I, Moffat's era had a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows and it's his low lows are worth criticizing and people have a lot of things that are valid to say about them. I ultimately like them a lot. I think they're my favorite years of the modern relaunch era. But at the same time, I think the flaw with, I think what you're saying is right, but I also think that we need to stop doing that group anymore because a lot of the people who have, people who have had the mantle of the show since 2005 are the people who were running the stuff during the wilderness years and basically like, well, if I ever got my shot at the show, this is what I would do with it. And now they've done it. And like, there are, I'm I'm sure there are other talented writers from that like stable of people who would have done a great job as showrunner of Dr. Who. But at the same time, I feel like we're starting to see a lot of retreading of the same ideas just from different writers because they're all kind of coming out of that space. And I think the show having been back since 2005 and Having had a lot of writers who have come through, I, I I hear what you're saying about there not being an apparent heir to the the role, but I don't know if I agree that it's true because I think that there are writers who have been great mm. over the course of the run that I think would be good and have like grown up with Doctor Who, and in ways that similarly we're seeing with like Star Wars now, we're seeing a lot. Mm. Like I think we there there are Ryan Johnsons out there for Doctor Who. There are people who are like, mm-hmm. yes, I grew up with this, I loved it. But I also grew up in a different sensibility of writing and probably do something very different with it and unique. And I think that we're seeing now with with Last Jedi, which is, you know, at this point, five years ago, but also we're seeing with Andor, like we're seeing people who are creating stories set and then like also all the writers who have done High Republic stuff. And hopefully, you know, with Leslie Headland coming up with, um, with the Acolyte, because even Dave, I think Dave Filoni is the Star Wars version of a Stephen Moffat. I think he's like, I think he's the guy that like, has such yeah. reverence oh. for, uh, oh, I, th- I just made Michael hit the couch with that comment, but he's, he's the guy. <laughs> no, who was- I have, oh,
1: sorry. I, I, if you, if you put a quarter in me about Filoni, I won't stop. I, I'm not a, I'm personally not a fan and I have a. I want to hear. Well, okay. well, sorry, Riley, please. Well, so, no, no,
2: I, 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 long I story know. short, I'm saying he's the guy who I think is, that is exact mix between reverence for George Lucas but also like very very strong ideas about what he would do with it and what he wants to do with it and like yeah. manages mm-hmm. to speak those well but at the same time i i'm really fascinated by the star wars shows that are being done by other people because i do think these other voices coming into it are are bringing a lot to it i think star wars has an advantage over doctor who in that there are so many clearly defined eras of storytelling in star wars that you can actually do different types of stories just by changing where you're setting your your piece at like andor mm. fits perfectly where it is in the age of empire if you try to do the exact kind of andor storytelling during like a republic era it might feel very different it wouldn't be necessarily worse or better but it'll be a very different feeling of a show and similar with like first order stuff and yeah
0: No, for sure. For sure. The other thing, too, that you reminded me of, like, I think one of the things Russell is absolutely going to be doing, I'm sure, is developing new talent, you know, finding the heir apparent to hand it over. Like, I don't think he wants to be the showrunner for Doctor Who for another five or six or seven years. Like, I think he wants to... I think he wants to set it off like he has this new vision, this like relaunch, retooling of the show for for a new media landscape, like the same way that that he did in 2005. And I think he wants to set everything up and then hand the keys over to somebody, you know, younger, frankly. I think it's even
2: darker than that. I think he thought the show was not going to survive past the era that just ended. And I think he yeah. felt like he had to help save it. Like I think, I think, I think, I think, if the Bad Wolf deal hadn't happened and Russell hadn't come back to showrun and David Tennant wasn't coming back to be the new Doctor for a brief amount of time, we would have seen the show end with Jodie Whittaker. I think that I think that I she think would have right. been the last Doctor. And I'm glad, I'm glad that for lots of reasons, I'm glad that didn't happen. And I'm of sure reasons. they would have blamed her for it. But mm-hmm. right. yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think you're right. I think Russell is in a position of I am here to save this show. I'm here to to
1: and ensure kind of that it has a future.
2: Re, yeah, re it yeah. and then find new generation to tell stories with it. Because I think there was the I haven't read the After Who magazine stuff completely. But I've seen excerpts from it. And I heard the yeah. mention of people working on the show who were teenagers when the show came back in 2005. And there are there are people who I think who have written for the show in the last generation of writers or so that I think would be really interesting voices to see take over the show. Several from the
0: Chibnall era, as a matter of fact, and also the last couple of years of Stephen Moffat.
2: Sarah Dollard, somebody, for example. Uh, yeah, I would yeah, tell right, someone right. I wouldn't meet. I'd be interested in mm-hmm. his yes. no, so absolutely. Jamie
1: Matheson, yeah. as well as Dollard. I think Series no, 9 Jamie, was a yeah. real... Um, series 9 was felt to me like an audition series for new showrunners. Uh, yeah. And then like Peter Harness pitched that Monk story, and it was like, put him in the fucking trash can. Um, Anyway... <laughs> Uh, oh, wait, before we move on so, to
2: themes, I do want to come back to Michael real quick. I, I'm not hosting. I have, I, I have notes
1: on like all the stuff I want to circle back on. But well, what I want
2: to say is before we move on to completely from connections between Star Wars and Doctor Who, I want to let you name your your favorite connection of actor from Star Wars and Doctor Who.
1: Oh, well, it's Simon Pegg. Um, but oh, also wait. Peter Cushing. Yeah. Uh, obviously it's Peter Cushing. But I would. Oh God. I think how be did I not? How we did didn't they... mention.
2: Well, your how your, your heads in not... the
1: classic uh, trilogy. I understand completely. But but Simon Pegg being a modern example of that is, I think, yeah. really I wanted to make sure we noticed that uh, noted that because I feel like people listening are going to be shouting at the podcast a few minutes ago, and I just wanted to make sure we're like, we hear you. Um, yeah, or even
2: Shona from Last Christmas, who is Vel yes, on Andor yes, currently. Yes,
1: she's fantastic. I love fantastic her on both things. things. Oh my God, she's in. Um, I think she's in the new Lady Chatterley's Lover, and she's fantastic. She right was the waif on Game of Thrones.
2: I she's never so put that together. No, yeah,
1: no, you're uh, absolutely I, right. She's
2: in Last. I'm Christmas. weirdly fixated on Shona. I love Last Christmas. It's one of my favorite Christmas specials, and so no, it's incredible. I love Last yeah. Christmas, and mm-hmm. I have a running gag about it because in the end, when she wakes up and she has like her list of things to do. One of them is forgive Dave, and I've always joked like we never got the <laughs> conclusion of the, the forgive Dave story. What did Dave do to Shona? And also, I think from what I understand, <laughs> it's, a it's a big finish. Yeah. Uh,
0: it's a big finish spinoff series that'll
2: run for Dave,
1: the guy was, who annoyed Shona, like it's last be year at Gally, a last year
2: at yeah. Galley when I was on the Cornell Collective, we were told to pitch what we would pitch as a big finish spinoff series, and I I pitched Dave. And I was like, no, what didn't. happened to Should she forgive him? What's he doing? <laughs> what was Dave doing during a time war? When's our, when's our war Dave series? The War Dave. Oh yes. my
1: God. What was he up to?
2: Yeah. Oh. But she's And then incredible. you got to have River, River Song. She's a very up good actress. Yeah. Uh, I, we now know, you know, who she's related to. And I don't know how a spoiler we can or can't be. So I should be careful. But has Andy Circus done a star at Doctor
1: Who? I was thinking about that. Andy Serkis would be amazing in any Doctor Who part, but I think he's, he's he too would. big for it now. Yeah. I was wondering if he you had
2: know? done it like as like a voice or something at some point.
1: But at some point, if Andrew Garfield does a Star War, that's one more we can check. Yes. That's true. Right. So, so,
2: so, so Hugh Korshi
0: is one. He played Captain Panaka in The Phantom Menace, and then he was in oh, The Evolution of the Daleks.
1: Cool. So we got one from all the Wars eras. That's awesome.
0: That we means. almost had Matt Smith
2: and it ended up not happening, but
0: I think he was supposed to be like a clone of palpatine or something
2: yeah before they decided he... to just have ian mcdarmann play uh palpatine they were gonna have yeah, him right. be like a younger version of him
1: he had a weird run of like playing big bads or maybe playing because he was like skynet yeah. in that one term anyway
2: he's currently playing kind of a big bad on game of thrones house of the dragon also right? true yeah
1: he was the villain in morbius as everybody remembers um <laughs> yeah. no just me no okay i'm pretty sure the morbius <laughs> well... was the villain in morbius that whole movie was the villain of that whole yeah. movie. No, it's not that.
2: Anyway. Morbius the I mean, film is the villain
1: of Morbius. Yeah, yeah.
0: My favorite actor crossovers is um John Hollis who was Lobot in the Empire Strikes Back and he was a character in The Mutants, the John Pertwee serial because during the pandemic I started a full classic series rewatch. Nice. And I wanted to do it the way that so Elizabeth Sandover The writer of Tardis Eruditorum, she made the case a number of years ago that really made a lot of sense to me that the classic series is not meant to be watched as these like feature length omnibus editions. Oh, not at all. It's bad. Like single stories. Yeah. So. So I had never really watched the show the way that it was actually designed to be watched, like, uh, you know, one segment a week or like one segment with some time in between. It's not all meant to be watched. So, So I decided to do that. You know, most Doctor Who stories I experienced as like a single feature length story, either on VHS or on DVD. And... Uh, like it really was a revelation for me. Like all of a sudden, a lot of pacing things just sort of made sense. I was like, "Oh well, that's why this is like this." Is because I, I actually do not remember where we left off last week. So I'm glad that there's sort of this like two
2: or three minute uh, reprise of the end of last wow. week. So I'm like, "Oh right, right, right." And you like, wouldn't so- have had it. On, you wouldn't have had it available on demand to go back and watch last week. So if you've missed last week's, you need to know what's happening. You wouldn't have it on tape. You wouldn't have it on rerun. So. If you saw it, you saw it. If you didn't see it, I hope this episode, this show makes a good job of making me understand what happened. So,
0: right. Exactly. Exactly. Like, that's another thing. Um, The only thing that I'm not really doing is I've been able to watch a lot of them on Blu-ray on like, you know, uh, a 60 inch TV. And like these shows were never meant to be rendered in that like high fidelity. Right. So it's like so like the effectiveness of like what you can get away with in terms of you know, the old joke about shaky sets and cardboard walls and, and 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 bubble wrap and everything. It's like, yes, except also, you know, keep in mind they were experienced by most people in like grainy, staticky, black and white 13 inches. Like, so yeah. it's like, it's a lot more forgiving. Anyway.
2: And even like modern shows or modern-ish shows are struggling with that too. Like a lot of shows that are getting remastered and re-released. Oh, God. Oh, there's totally. a whole thing on, on TikTok where people are finding Buffy episodes. Where you can like clearly see the stunt oh, double. And I'm like because it's in 4K. Was, like it's uh, it's in high def 4K. It wasn't well, as no, obvious that, when it was airing.
1: That that remaster was brutal. They took the 4.3 mats off. And they didn't like. So the, the they didn't compensate right. So it's just that that remaster is particularly terrible. Ah, uh, the buffy one. Yeah. Um whereas, like, like the wire, I have a friend who worked on the wire remaster to to move that back to or to to change that to sixteen nine. And they, like, went in and painted out set stuff that was in the corners of the mat and things like that to-
2: oh, well, that's what's so interesting about the Harmi's despecialized Star Wars is that Ooh. it actually restored. like people always think of Harmies as just being like, oh, they took out all the special edition stuff. But, like, no, he actually went in and, like, like made true, like because the special edition is based off of like like the ones that are on Disney Plus right now. A lot of the colors are crushed. A lot of the stuff is not as like vivid as it could be. And Harmy actually went in and found like old prints that like were that he like restored. So as much as it's called despecialized, it's actually like a pretty great quality print of the original. And like it would be great if Star Wars would actually go back and and do a real official release of the original that like fixed a lot of those things
1: it's money on the table they're just leaving it it's a big pile of money sitting on a table i still don't get it
2: i mean i think they're
0: respecting the wishes of george lucas i mean for right oh now God, so
1: we just gotta wait him out that's brutal i whatever I, i'm um, almost yeah, yeah that's I'm an almost example.
2: he released he released that original trilogy on dvd at one point, and it's a terrible transfer like it's just it's like watching a VHS tape of somebody like recorded and saved onto a disc. It's, it's brutal. Yeah.
0: Well, so, so we actually, next week I have an episode where I interviewed a guy who wrote three volumes on the history of star Wars on home video that (laughs) he goes through All of the transfers, which is a very fascinating discussion. And a bunch of episodes ago, I did an interview with one of the guys from Team Negative One, which created those 4K scans of film prints of the original Star Wars trilogy, like the 4K 77 Mm -hmm. sort of floating out there. And it's really interesting uh, because... You know, if you watch one of the original trilogy movies like on Disney Plus or one of the Blu-ray releases, it's really scrubbed very clean. Like it doesn't really look like it was shot on film because, you know, for modern audiences, that is not acceptable. It makes it, uh, you know, look like it was shot a long time ago, which it was. Uh, But one of the things that I really appreciate about watching those restorations is like you you have the film grain and like some of the scratches like that were there on the negative. Like, that's how this film was made and how it always existed. Like, yeah. Like so anyway, it's a whole long way of saying that I got up to John Pertwee in my rewatch and I was watching The Mutants and there was this guy, I was like, he looks really familiar. He has a really familiarly shiny head. And I was like, who is that guy? And then I went on IMDb and I'm like, he's Lobot. He's Lobot from The Empire Strikes Back. That's incredible. So yeah, so that's probably my, uh, uh, my favorite uh, crossover. Either that or Brian Blessed.
1: Oh dive uh, <laughs> that's the last
0: one i know wrong franchise yeah. come on but um, i mean
2: that speaks to what you're saying earlier about the nature of like this pool of british actors of like if you're filming a sci-fi thing in the uk you've got like 20 guys you have to call and that's like how you mm-hmm. do it and like especially with star wars because you're actively trying to create a group in your story that seem imperialistic and domineering and the way to do that is to put them in fascist uniforms and give them british accents
0: uh tom baker i believe voiced the, the bendu Yes, the Bendu in the Clone Wars, yeah. right?
2: Yeah. Oh, oh and David Tennant. David Tennant voiced, uh, he's a droid in the Clone Wars. I always forget what droid number he is, but he's the droid huh. who serves during the uh, the children looking, the Padawans looking for their, their kyber crystals. He's the droid who helps them build the lightsabers for the first time.
0: Uh, there was something that I heard. Um, there's very famously an astronaut costume from uh, yes. the Tenth Planet serial that somehow made its way on a bounty hunter in the empire strikes back um yeah and Dengar.
1: then I... I think dengar's got the ambassadors of death spacesuit yeah oh i think you're right yeah I think that's what it is because the, there were a bunch of those like i think dalek 6388 or one of those other sites that tracks down props like that they tracked down like it was part of some batch of like spacesuits and then right it all like got rented out to various places it's like that um the two the two red tubes in star yes. trek that show up like sci-fi. in Every Star yeah. Trek, uh, uh, because right. they're this, it's a rented prop. They just had like a standing deal with a prop warehouse for that thing. The most recent one that I think popped on the internet was the, the Gun in the Mandalorian's gun cabinet that is like maybe literally the, the stock from one of the machine gun Daleks from that, uh, uh, Exelon cereal where what? like if, if you look at the oh yeah oh you I was I'm amazed you don't know this uh, uh I have no idea but there's in the first episode of the Mandalorian season one like the pilot I guess he opens yeah. up the cl- uh, cabinet of guns and one of the center guns has this like kind of strange flange on the end and it's either a recreation uh intentionally or no or literally that gun um, but that stock is taken off of when the Daleks got their machine gun arms from that one Dalek serial where their guns didn't work. Um, so there's there may literally be a classic Doctor the who Dalek. Pop in. Yes, ma- I'm, I don't know, yeah. But that's it's that's crazy. Either way, like somebody, both versions of the story are cool. Like either it's the original prop like resurfaced or. Somebody unwittingly made a perfect recreation of a Dalek gun arm, like <laughs> just just to put in a cabinet. Like both versions of the story are are very fun.
2: Is there a possibility uh, that it's a Easter egg? Like somebody did it on purpose? Oh, like I want to have a Dalek in here.
1: I don't know. I, I I because it's it's a gun that was used in another Star Wars scene, and the understanding is like, oh, they just like stuck the barrel on. Ah, oh, gotcha gun handle right like um so i i don't know all the details but there's there's literally like a dalek part well not anymore because the the ship has been atomized but there was a dalek part in the mandalorians uh
0: ship that's very Uh, cool i had no idea about that but now i'm gonna have to go back and look for that because that's very cool michael i do want to hear your thoughts on dave filoni because the mention of his name seemed to elicit a strong reaction from you
1: i don't get the like fan like laurels that are always thrown at that guy for like being super creative or whatever. Cause I feel like any time similar to your point, right? Earlier for like Moffat having a default state of writing, which is like, he always wants to write a sitcom, like whatever he's doing. He just wants to be writing a sitcom, which is why like all of his shows turn into sitcom banter. He just wants to be doing that. Right. But Dave Filoni, I think very similarly, they're like, Hey Dave, we have this like new concept. Um, we'd like you to, uh, come up with the, you know, come up with like the series idea. And it's like, all right, great. And he goes into his office Am I just and he takes Western? off his cowboy hat. Uh, yeah, he takes off his cowboy hat and he <laughs> removes the co- the dog eared copy of Lone Wolf and Cub Volume One uh, from the top of his head. And he goes, oh, there's going to be an old warrior and they will get a cub. Um, and he has done this for every fucking one of his shows. And it was like Dave Filoni, genius, mastermind, incredible. Um, the Mandalorian, Lone Wolf and Cub, the Bad Batch, five lone wolves and a cub. Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi, uh, Lone uh, Wolf and Cub. Go ahead and look at the credits uh,
2: for Obi-Wan Kenobi. Filoni did not do
1: Okay. Not Obi-Wan. that one. Fine. In fact, Whatever. Prob- uh, like
2: Obi-Wan, even though it is Lone Wolf and Cubby, they part of why they delayed it was because it was more so originally. And they when they first got the script, they're like, this just feels like the Mandalorian. We need to make it a little bit different.
1: Dave was like, I bet Filoni was like, this is edging it on my territory. We gotta <laughs> fix this up. Um yeah, I, there was another one I had, but I can't remember it anymore. But like every time Dave Filoni makes a show, he just makes Lone Wolf and Cub again, and I it it, it is frustrating to me. Where it's like I would love yeah. for newer writers with broader ideas, than it's Lone Wolf and Cub again uh, to to write the Star Wars.
2: How much so, of yeah. how much of Mandalorian though do you think was Filoni doing that, and how much was John Favreau doing that? Because I felt like that Mandalorian to me felt more like. John Favreau's Favreau's baby baby. with Dave sticking his stuff into it.
1: My whole quote unquote Filoni Filoni hypothesis is one, a joke. I need to be really clear. But two, it's responding to the people who praise Filoni like blindly. Like I just, I I totally agree with you. that a lot of what the Mandalorian is. It's all Favreau. I think especially now it feels really Favreau-y. And Boba Fett was just like, oh, I can if you didn't tell me Robert Rodriguez made that show, I would have guessed. Yeah, um, like all that show needed was like a a space uh, mariachi, like that was the only thing it was missing. Um, like that's it. Like, I mean, so, it kind
2: of has, it does have Danny Trejo in it, so I mean, like, yeah. Cutting close. Well, that's Space Machete. Different, truth.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, I'm, I'm at like the time, It's literally a, a right, three line. But, yeah. but it's a different Rodriguez universe, like that's the, the Desperado verse versus the Spy Kids universe, of which Machete is a part. We must remember. Um, <laughs> Thank you for bringing that. that. Is one cohesive universe. Uh, we have to always keep that in mind. Um,
2: and I, I think like yeah. that's what's interesting about this current era of Star Wars is that we are getting these different. Like visual styles and different storytelling styles that really fit the, which I think is what Star Wars has needed for a long time, is mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. stories that are from a point of view. Whereas I think like the flaw of, I think, you know, I, I think Solo was unfairly maligned. I think Solo ended up being a much better movie than it had any right to be, given how belabored and and, and struggling that production was. But I do think like one of the big things was that they let Lord and Miller go, and by they I mean Kathleen Kennedy, who. I, I don't think it deserves as much demonization as she gets, but she does deserve some no. criticism. But I think that like she's
1: a businesswoman, like she's making business yeah. choices. And, and I think
2: not- that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like what's what's nice about the Disney Plus series is I do feel like there's a little bit more freedom to let filmmakers tell their story and use Star Wars as a brush versus mm. those Star Wars story movies where it did feel like, OK, we're going to start with that and then we're going to homogenize it down into our one single like tone, and which is a lot of what Marvel does. Like Marvel does really well when they can find a filmmaker who can work within what Marvel does. But if you cannot work within what Marvel does, you get the Eternals. So I think that like I think that that's what's really interesting about Andor is Andor somehow feels extremely Tony Gilroy, but also very Star Wars in a way that like it doesn't feel like any other Star Wars stories we've seen so far, except for, you know, Rogue One to a degree. Rogue one felt much more studio noted than, than well, this did. Yeah, he wasn't, you know, but this, this does feel a lot more like we're letting this person tell a story. And that's why I'm kind of excited for all these like upcoming shows that are outside of what we've already experienced. I'm less excited about ones to just feel like, Hey, here are like a side seasons to Mandalorian. Like I want the ones that are like, here's a different era. Here's a different type of storytelling.
1: I don't, need to see a lightsaber ever again in my life like i just i don't i'm <laughs> well good. then thank you well i mean i talking, i mean like it's
2: been no it's been, it's been no good, i man, hey I, a hey well um, hey no
1: hey i love andor <laughs> um no the thing I, I i was gonna say that i i, I do enjoy about the new disney plus era that i hope is also something that that hopefully comes with like dr who spin off but the thing i uh, andor is channeling like a go to real places and shoot star wars vibe like they're channeling this like whole other vibe of star wars that hasn't really been done since like digital tech really started yeah. you know there's the maligning of the prequel era for being all shot on a green screen but george wanted to control like lucas wanted to control everything right now i think there are creators particularly in the sort of andor zone who are like we need to embrace the chaos of like we just need to find a place and there's a great tweet about this somewhere and i, I absolutely cribbing it but it was like we just need to find like a brutalist building and shove some sci-fi crates in it like that's good star warsing too yeah um yeah uh, uh, and, and and that goes all the way back to something we started the episode here talking about which is like i don't think fans understand that there are whole departments whose job it is to like save money <laughs> like they're right. all they're yeah. like people whose entire job is to be like no we're not spending extra on that
2: yeah, and, and there's an article with Tony Gilmore recently about Andor where he said mm-hmm. the only notes he's ever gotten that are like real notes from Disney have been budget. Like everything yeah. he's had to make a change for for Andor has because because they can't afford what they wanted to do and they had to find a way to write around it to make it less expensive. And that's like a really interesting thing about that show is that like you can do lots of creative things as long as you can keep it in budget. Like that's the thing that I think a lot of... it's It's unfortunate that the modern trend towards filmmaking is let's make the most expensive things we can possibly make when instead it's mm. like, let's find a way to tell really interesting stories and use a budget to make us like limit ourselves. Like a great example he talked about in this article for, I think it was for the Hollywood reporter. It wasn't the Rolling Stone article. Cause I haven't read that one yet. But he was talking about the Aldani heist episode and how mm-hmm. when the Aldani people show up to celebrate the eye, it was originally supposed to be like 3000 or like 10,000 people. And then, because of COVID, they were like, "We cannot possibly film this. Like, we can't get that many people. We can't put them all in buses." And I guess they 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 didn't they didn't want to do the CGI Lord of the Rings thing and like CGI in a crowd of people. So it ends up becoming like a few dozen at the most. And he said, like weirdly, that budget limitation and that logistic limitation made the scene more powerful because now it felt like the remnants of a civilization that the, the empire had snuffed out completely as opposed to just like them renting the space on this land from a pretty prosperous planet. And I think that like that kind of thing is really interesting to me. And yeah, with, with Andor the location shooting is really fascinating because so much of what's happening in star Wars TV making nowadays is, is volumes, right? Like so much Mm. of it is filming things on led volumes. And like, I think volumes are a great thing to have when you want to be filming on alien worlds that do not look like anything you can see on earth. Like if you're looking for weird plants and you're looking for like, like the ocean, as far as the eye can see, and you don't have the money to do an ocean, a water tank or whatever. That's something interesting. But I think when you're talking about the visceral feeling of being in an oppressive, brutal prison, or you're being in a, you know, imperial, an ISB office building like that, if you can't do that, you got, yeah, it's, it's, you're like I said, like using a brutal building set to second decorating and stuff like that. And I'm, That'll be interesting to see what with Doctor Who. With Doctor Who getting bigger budgets, like, will it just be even fancier? The same hallway dressed up three times, or will it be? Are they going to film Doctor Who in volumes? Are they going to film Doctor Who? Like, are they going to use a volume to recreate a quarry? Like, that's the running uh, the Doctor Who thing of the, of the entire <laughs> right. episode of the quarry. We it's could bring the quarry to the studio.
1: Yeah, I am so skeptical of volumes because I feel like they're great for every person in the production except for the actor which is like the one person you really need to be immersed in a scene. Yeah. Like it, it feels like it's, they're still having to act to a tennis ball, except it's like a piece of paper instead.
2: That's a good point. That's my concern. I I think that was the problem with green screen acting for a long time. I think the volume is a little bit of a step above green screen acting because you can actually see the environment around you. But yeah, I do think like when you watch those earliest movies that were being shot all in green screen, like Sky Captain and even like some of the prequel scenes, I mean the actors don't know what to no. do and I think like you mm-hmm. almost have to like relearn how to act in this new environment and I think for volumes we're getting into that as now as well. I think unfortunately we're also the, the the shows and movies most likely to be filmed in a volume are the shows and movies that like they don't really care that much how good the acting is. So they're going to keep moving on anyway even if the take isn't the best take. Well, I mean it is um super interesting to me because
0: I think the volume, as with any technique or technology, is when it's utilized really well, then it's great. But when you use it as like a crutch or or as a catch-all, then you start to see the limitations of it. Like, I really enjoyed, had a great time with Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I don't have any like, there's like nothing in it that I would consider a huge problem or like a flaw. But there was a sense for me watching it, there were a lot of sort of interior spaces that seem to like have the same dimensions weirdly as yeah. the volume stage. Right. And there were also some things like one thing that I heard one of the cinematographers on the Mandalorian say is that the thing that's key with the volume is luminance. So for example, like when they want to shoot something like outside on the deserts of Tatooine in the middle of the day, they shoot that on the back lot in front of a green screen because uh, they can't get the brightness bright enough from the volumes. So with that in my head, I started seeing like uh, like all of
2: these little things that just like knowing that it's an LED stage, I start to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A thing that I notice with the volumes is is the opposite when it's nighttime. Like you almost can see the wall around. It almost feels like you're sitting on a set where you can see where the walls are and the seams because like there's a scene in Obi-Wan, especially I think it's in the last episode where he's like in the desert with Reba. And I think it was shot in a volume at night and it feels like he's on a set. Like it feels so artificial. That scene is
0: exactly what popped into my head as soon as you said that. It's like that whole thing at night on Tatooine in the desert, like it just felt fake. It just felt like they were on a soundstage. It just really yeah. did. The, Which is so the, wild um, because
2: it's a, it's a it's a it's a setting that you can film so easily, not far from where they filmed that entire show. Like it feels like you could have easily driven out to death valley and film or go gone down to like you know the imperial dunes where they filmed return of the jedi and like it wouldn't have been that hard of a day to shoot but they must just been like well maybe because they were shooting it delayed so much they had so little budget left like we got to shoot this here it's what we got we're doing it yeah i mean look like this speaks to what we were saying earlier about how there's this broad
0: lack of understanding of how films are made you know you made a decision because you thought something was going to work one way and then you see how it works and maybe if it's not exactly how you thought it would go like that's what you got and you can't reshoot it like it's not a Mm -hmm. like it's not a movie it's not unlimited money it's timelines and budgets that you have to stick to so like you know maybe you realize the week before this isn't going to look that
2: great we should shoot this in the desert but like all these things are set in motion like you can't do it production that massive you can't just that, that that's it's it's a ship stuck in the middle of the Suez Canal, like you can't just flip it around. Right. Like it has to. It, it's there. Right. It's there. I think that's a thing that's like really interesting these days. With I feel like these big film and movie companies. I know we're like way off your topic at this point. I apologize for that. But no, no, no. I feel like they've kind of created a little bit of a hell for themselves, where they have tried to create TV shows that have a cinematic feel to them, but they mm-hmm. know they can't give them cinematic budgets because they don't make the kind of money that movies do in theaters and you can't recoup your expenses with a streaming show the way you can, even if you have, like, every streaming service has a ceiling of this is the viewers we're going to get, we have a monthly, we're getting, it's like a weird trade-off of, like, you're getting money every month from them, but you're not going to get more people. Whereas with movies, it's like, oh, we might make new money every single time one of these goes out, and so we'll make a big chunk at once and then also, like, future rights and stuff like that and which also every company having their own streaming service also diminishes the money they're going to make on the back end of a film because they're no longer getting licensing rights and stuff like that because they're self so right. that's a whole thing but I think a really good example of it is the way people talk about talk about like House of the Dragons or even even Power of the Rings of Power I always want to call it Power of the Ring even Rings of Power which is the most expensive television show ever created ever made ever, ever made yeah. but if you break down the per episode, people have, oh, that show has a billion dollar budget. Yes, it does for five seasons. It's a, million, it's a billion dollars for five seasons. And when you break down the per episode budget for that show, it's high. It is the highest. It is 60. It's about it's about 60 million dollars an episode, which is a lot of money. It's also about a third of what each Peter Jackson film had for its budget as right. part of a three trilogy that was shot together and was able to make some expenses because they were filming them all back to back. But like, mm-hmm. and that was in 2000 and f- like two thousand one, probably like 1999, 1990 when they were 2000, when they were filming those like people. So I remember when that, when that show came out, there was all this talk about, well, look how much cheaper the costumes look on this show versus how they looked in these films. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, they're a lot cheaper. They, television does not ever have the budget that a film does and it's not going to. And it's like, they are being super cheap and they are cheaping out on stuff and it kind of sucks. But at the same time, it's like, that's what that, that's how you make Lord of the rings for television. Then you're doing it more it's expensive also, than
1: anybody else ever. It's not a fair comparison either. Cause you could take, you could take Aragorn's costume from return of the King and shoot it on the set of Lord of the Rings, the rings of rings of rings of, rings um and it would look terrible because of the finishing process on those on those shows like it's shot in like 8k maybe 16k it's shot with all this digital intermediate stuff like you could literally take the film costume and put it in the show and it would not look as good like the circumstances are just totally different like it's not a reasonable comparison
2: yeah
0: well so this is something interesting actually that makes this relevant because i think as fans of Doctor Who in particular, the special effects were never the point. The mm-hmm. the, yeah. the production value was, it was never about the spectacle. It was about the idea and the idea of what it was supposed to be. It was always like gesturing at something. Mm-hmm. And like even audiences at the time, like this wasn't convincing anybody that this was literally real. It was more representational and that was good enough for what it had to do and had to be. And I think one of the differences between Star Wars and Doctor Who, specifically when they began, was I think Star Wars was very much about the spectacle and how, quote unquote, real it looked. Oh, yeah. And how good the special effects are. That was one of the main selling points of Star Wars, was that like you'd never seen sci-fi fantasy Realized in this like real way, whereas Doctor Who, I don't know that that was ever the intention. Like, that's not what they were ever trying to do necessarily. No, to
2: the point that I think like original Doctor Who was meant to be like a stage play. Like, that's how TV was made in that era, especially. And I think even American TV had that to a degree as well. Like, I think American sitcoms, especially, were very stagey. And like, even Star Trek does feel a little bit on stage, like, it doesn't feel like a Mm -hmm. movie. And it's uh, probably also a money thing because in the
0: States, certainly by the 1960s, drama shows would be shot on film, you know, single camera, 16 millimeter, which would lend itself to a much more cinematic style uh, because you're shooting for the edit. And for some reason, I guess kind of arbitrarily, uh, although I don't know, sitcoms sort of remained that like theatrical proscenium where it's sort of performed as a stage play and the action is being captured as live, essentially. Well, It was was cheaper film.
2: Yeah. They would use cheaper material. Like there's a whole. famously the reason why Lucille Ball made so much money off of I Love Lucy and was able to then she and Desi were able to you know turn RKO and Desi Lu and make Star Trek and all that kind of stuff is because when she was doing the first season of I Love Lucy, they they wanted her and Desi to come to New York to do it because they were essentially filming sitcoms like like live things like and like like they, even if it went out like later that day. It was like a a quality of like video print essentially, like not videotape as we know it now, but like that's basically what it was. And if you try to do it like in LA and then ship it to New York or 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 air it later, it would degrade so much that it would look bad. And she and Desi wanted to live in Los Angeles; they didn't want to live in New York, and so it became a whole thing of how to produce it to where she finally was like, okay, if you spend the money to shoot this on film so that it doesn't degrade. We will give up X amount of dollars for our our fee for doing the show, but we take over the back end instead. And then by doing so, she created a type of film that was a TV show that was then able to be resold as reruns, which previously shows wouldn't really be able to because they looked terrible if you did that. And then she made a bunch of money by then eventually selling those right back to and I think it was NBC. Like she basically like, made made them give her the back end and then resold it to them for the back end and got all the money. It was kind of amazing. So in that decision, actually, the fact that they shot I Love
0: Lucy on film is the reason why they've scanned I Love Lucy film to be able to present the show in HD. And it looks amazing. It's like, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, but that is to say, like, that's not how TV uh, really certainly enough. at the BBC worked. Yeah. Once Star Wars hits, I think a couple things happen. I think Um, suspension of disbelief or that forgiveness of an audience, you know, in terms of the level of realism and production quality that they're willing to go along with sort of change. I think that Doctor Who started looking more and more shoddy in comparison to what, you know, sci-fi was quote-unquote supposed to look like like something that always blows my mind is you know when you remember that classic who was on contemporaneously with the first couple seasons of star treks and next generation and it's like if you could imagine like you're a sci-fi fan who's living in london and you're watching colin baker or sylvester mccoy on doctor who and then you flip the channel and you're seeing star treks and next generation like the disparity
2: in production quality is like mm-hmm. is quite immense yeah and part of that part of it has to do with the fact that doctor who was being funded on a public television budget on a on a channel that did not want to have doctor who anymore so they were basically mm-hmm. giving them well, certainly at that to point yes show. right like like they the bbc hated doctor who at that point they hated sci-fi in general like the people running the bbc were embarrassed to have sci-fi on their channel and so like they were looking for all the reasons to to gut everything they could with it so it was a really interesting time period for it
0: Oh uh, no yeah and there's that famous clip of Michael Grade I believe either the head of drama or the BBC controller at that at that time the one who really had it out for Doctor Who he was on a talk show in the early 90s and they asked him like why he cancelled the show and he was like well because I'd seen Star Wars and I'd seen you know Close Encounters of the Third Kind and then I look at what we're doing and it's just like what is this garbage? Or uh rubbish, I guess he uh,
2: he would have yeah. said. But it's like if you had given them the money to make the show, they would have made it as good as that was. It's such a and they I mean, look, they tried their best. That they're they're trying really hard to make it look good. Yeah. No, no, and that's actually one of the things that I really
0: enjoy about particularly classic Doctor Who, but I think it still sort of applies. And we can talk about that in a second. But like the fact that it's clear what they're working with and how hard they're trying. And sometimes you can see maybe that they're not trying very hard, but like, you know, having the context of like how many weeks and weeks and like how many cereals they're making and like where they are in the year and how much money they must have. It's like, I don't know, maybe I'm particularly idiosyncratic in this way, but there's something that I appreciate more about seeing the seams versus something that looks and perfect on like a technical level, I think because you get the sense of like the human fingerprints there, like yeah. if that makes any sense, it's sort of like, mm-hmm. like that makes me feel like this is a bespoke thing that somebody worked on and really cared about. And they're like, really trying to make like there's a humanness that's there like a humanity. Yeah. I agree with that. There's a life, there's a tangible life to it. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Versus, you know, something that may look slick and pristine and like technically perfect, but that's not like, I kind of don't really know what to do with that. Like, I don't really care about that. It's like, great. That you can make that look like that, but that also looks exactly the same as everything else. And like, I don't really care about that. Like, what are you here for?
2: Yeah. I think that's like a lot of what you see in superhero movies, especially is like, you get a lot of this like homogenized visuals, but then you're like, but was there a good story to it? Like did I care about the characters or what they were doing or what their involvement was? Or was it just like all tan- like like transitive setup for a big punch fight with with robots basically? And it's like I do I care or do I not care? Whereas like when I feel like like that's why I think I still have such a passion for stop motion animation and like puppetry and stuff like that. So I'm like, wow, somebody had to go through and like manually design each of those armatures and each of those things and put it together. And versus like, oh, I just made this, like, I just built a, you know, CDI thing and told it and gave it AI to do what it wanted to do, which is like, it's self-impressive, but there is something about right. the effort that like the in the storytelling. It kind of like, I think we're going back to what we we're saying about what great about is like physically going to a space and, and like set dressing that space and putting people in it really like leads to thoughtful and interesting points of view in the storytelling.
0: I mean, there is something about, like, you know, whenever somebody complains about, like, the CG in Star Wars or something, like, in particular in the prequels, like, my thing was always, well, not to say you're wrong to not be satisfied by whatever is on offer, but, like, it's not that, like, the at 80s in the Battle of Hoth, like, looked real, right? Like, that's, yeah, that's not the point. like, Mm -hmm. Like, I do think there is something to be said for, you know, with stop motion, it's, like, clear that human hands made this happen. And I That's, think subconsciously yeah. you 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 feel that it's like you see it or feel something like there is that is imbued with something that you can't really you can't really articulate or even put your finger on exactly what it is, but it's something that just feels you're you're more accepting of it. Feels like less um, alienating, I guess.
1: Yeah, I'm yeah I'm not watching the ATAT for. The the compositing. I'm watching it for all the little greebles and all the little styrene bits and bobs that make up that thing. Like, there's going back to Andor, like, as cool as the Fondor looks, uh, um, Scarsguard ship, as cool as it looks on the outside, the coolest part of that ship is the little three camera lens droid mod thing that's like, hello, I am a practical little spinny guy. And you're like, that, yes. As cool as all the CG bullshit looks. Like, the coolest thing of that set is still, like, there's a weird little camera guy who's, like, in a ball and he's talking, and it's cool. Like,
0: no, yeah, that's, like, pulled off, like, a Super 8 film camera mm-hmm. from the 60s with oh, like, the tourist. The there
1: yeah, there's a pair of binoculars in the Aldani heist stuff in Andor where I was just like, i've i've held that camera I, I know exactly what they hollowed out i know exactly what you're <laughs> talking about it's
0: like the grill on the
2: front it's got like the silver yes. sort of like a, yeah they just
1: yeah. added a little like eyeball yeah. thing to the side of this camera and i'm like you clever little devils like that's yeah. so so well done
0: because uh oh, that's oh. a lot of what star wars the original production design for the original star wars is so is so genius and, you know, what they're often attempting to recreate when they do live action in that time period is like they are trying to create these British designers raiding junkyards and prop houses in 1976 and just gluing shit together. Well, like,
1: uh, that's I mean, going back to that, the original Sonic Screwdriver is a prop from a Thunderbirds movie. Like, oh, is that true? <laughs> they're, the John Pertwee, well, not the original Sonic Screwdriver, like the original Sonic Screwdriver was like a pen light. But the John Pertwee one with the spiral on the middle bit there there's terms for all these things um that is literally a prop from one of the thunderbirds feature films used in one I of mean, like close-ups with no, a human hand and like famously
2: you know? michael myers's mask in halloween they took a William Shatner oh your mask and made it into less of a yes. monster
1: yes there's a very
2: <laughs> there's a really funny Columbo. that was a long walk to get to a dumb joke but i'm glad y'all came with me on it
1: Oh, it was worth it. There is a there's a Columbo episode where William Shatner wears a blue jumpsuit, and it's like, oh, it's a strange prequel for the Halloween films. Um,
0: <laughs> uh. So let me ask both of you: Do you think the modern series of Doctor Who, um, because it obviously exists in like a post Star Wars modern blockbuster sort of sci-fi environment, do you think that Doctor Who's approach to special effects and spectacle has changed or like has the show changed in the way that it has to utilize special effects just given the way contemporary film and tv works
2: i i would say so i think the same way that star trek had to i think star trek like like next generation couldn't look like 60 star trek it had to look like a new tv era and similarly right. like i think i do think that if doctor who had tried to keep doing it the way they had done it back in the you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s, I think that it wouldn't have lasted very long. And I think I, mean, I think they basically... its not the, I don't think that, this, that that era was also not trying to do that either. I think they just had the budgets they had and they had to work with them. And I think same thing right. with the 2005 series. I think a lot of the stuff in the 2005 series, I mean, especially the very first season, the Eccleston run, there's some janky stuff in that looking back on it now, mm-hmm. but because like I BBC wasn't yeah BBC wasn't giving them a ton of money and like this might work this might not we're not going to like sink too much into it right away like it's wild when you think about what's been happening like i think there's a lot of things that i still dislike about you know the most recent era but the level of production value to it is 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 comparably it's night and day and so yeah i do think there's some level of that well i would
0: agree with that last thing you said if you compare the most recent of the chibnall seasons to say the very beginning or even the end of the Russell era. But, like, I think the Moffat era, by and large, I prefer the way it looks to the last three series of the channel oh, stuff. It. So it is really interesting. It's not, it's not just money and technology. It's also, like, how you utilize it.
1: I, I will say, though, particularly in the the eras you're pointing out technology is a huge factor in how those shows look agreed um, for sure. Like the, the original Davies era, most of that was still shot on like beta, like HD yeah. beta tape, mm-hmm. which is why there's only sort like a certain level of quality is only ever going to be achievable from, from those tapes. Yeah. Like you can't remaster to a certain point. They didn't even switch over to HD until the tenant specials. Right. right. And then the reason the Moffat era, you know, the first year of Smith in particular looks the way it does is because they, they, Put in the investment in like Alexa cameras and like really trying to to focus on the optics of the show, and then I think similarly, the era has fallen victim to like the over processing of a Mm -hmm. lot of streaming uh, television, where you you can just fix it in the computer, right, or you just add a very uh ubiquitous particle filter to anything and suddenly you've got cool energy, right? Whereas before you've had to like actually do animations on those things, right? Like it it is the ubiquity of those technologies that does affect the way they look.
2: Yeah. Um, and I was gonna say even the switch over from beta to digital was almost mm. a forced hand situation, which is essentially this is something I know mostly because of my day job working in like captioning and stuff like that, is we saw a major shift away from digit from beta to digital almost overnight in a way that the industry doesn't normally move to so quickly up until this point, most of the, like, whenever we were sending videos out to like broadcasting companies and like network affiliates and stuff like that, we were having to do manual encoded, like beta to beta transfers and stuff like that. And everyone was still running off of beta, but what happened was the tsunami in Japan destroyed the factories that made beta tapes like on a massive scale. And so it became a thing where suddenly it became way more expensive to make beta hit because there were so much less facilities to do it at. And so the price of beta went way up. And like, this is now, this is my experience as someone like boots on the ground. not someone who's like researched it as like a trend, but almost within a year or two of when this started to happen, almost every like local station basically made a light years level of jump in technology. And these were all people who were like, you know, they don't have a huge budget. They were always pretty like they were glacier like pacing and moving into newer material. And then suddenly all we had these like decks in our office that were, you know, worth like five figures and they were like pretty expensive. And then they went, they, they became obsolete overnight almost like within a year or two. They went from being a thing we used every day to a thing we wouldn't use once every six months, and now we don't even have them anymore. And it's yeah. wild. I think I think that even on the production level, they were like, we can't make stuff on beta anymore because we don't have the ability to keep getting new beta tapes and to manufacture them and to put them out the studio. And and now affiliates aren't even using beta anymore. So we're putting it all on digital anyway.
1: Yeah. And even practically within the production, one of the big reasons they switched to HD in the tenant specials is literally there's a shot in the waters of Mars where he like slow motion walks towards camera and you can't do that on HD beta. <laughs> like one of the big reasons they switched is because slow motion looks terrible on tape. They, they, they literally made the part of that production switch. Some of that investment was like, Oh, we can do cool slow-mo, which is like just the practicalities of the technology again. And yeah. even the cost of we're technology. way off topic, but, but still, yeah, like, but, it, but, but, but it makes sense of star Wars
2: as well. Like it's, the cost of technology eventually goes down. And mm-hmm. so you can do what you used to not be able to do at the budget of what you used to be able to do. So that's like, I mean, like all these shows have obviously had a little bit of increase in their budget, but I would say out of all of them up until possibly the future now in Doctor Who, they have never had a major increase in their budget because all their budget's is coming from, from public funding and like a little bit of licensing and that's about mm-hmm. it. And so Doctor Who's hands have really been tied by what they can do money-wise and I think and so like the reason why the Chibnall era looks the way it does because they could finally afford to do the things they could that Chibnall's era does with it for better or for worse and I and I think that it's almost the yeah, thing of like I think Moffat's era looks better to me because they were they didn't have access to some stuff and they were they had to kind of make do what they had and as a result I think it looks mm-hmm. a little back to what you were saying Josh about having your hands on it and having to like make really conscious choices about things now there are definitely things in the Moffat era that look ridiculous but I do think that's one thing I, I think the Moffat era is definitely the best looking of the three modern eras and I think that you know Russell Russell has some things that are almost laughably bad during his era as far as how they look and how much of that is his fault and how much of that is like production stuff it's pretty clear but it is wild. well yeah So uh, the other interesting thing, too, is
0: that both of you just reminded me, you know, once again, like in 2005, that was still shot for standard definition. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why they waited so long to make the transition to digital HD was because the cost of all of the CGI would quadruple, like just because you'd have to render it at a higher resolution, which not only means the render time is longer. But it also means it needs to be more detailed. You can't get away with things you used to be able to get away with. And so when you watch those early seasons of the modern show, like some of them do not hold up very well at all. But what is interesting is that I still think that while the technology and the budget was obviously higher for the modern incarnation, even all the way back to 2005, as compared to the classic series, I think it was still like relationally still similar to where it was like on the pecking order of production value like i still think it was like on the low end like we are bursting at the seams utilizing all our resources to pull off impossible things what i do think is really going to be interesting to see now for series 14 or whatever it is the first of the shooty seasons or the 15th doctor um, I read the other day that along with the Disney Plus distribution deal, the money they're getting from that means the budget per episode, I think, for modern Doctor Who right now, like as of the Chibnall era, was like one to three million pounds yeah. uh, per episode, which is low mm-hmm. for a show to be made now. Absolutely,
2: uh, It's amazing the show looks as good as it does for how low the budget is, to be honest with you. Not again yes. as a
1: testament to the ubiquity of technology, like the, the upgrade yeah. up yeah. of technology over the years um so but
0: next series i believe it will be more like nine to ten yeah million it it's pounds about a triple
2: tripled budget <laughs> so <laughs> it's gonna be really interesting to see where that money goes what they do with it
1: helping budget the writing budget a little bit more i think the tardis interior is gonna be an ar wall
2: so it's interesting because like there's something
0: charming to what doctor who tries to do with the resources that it has yeah. um that I really respond to. I'm not trying to be patronizing when I say that. It's just like something... I don't, I don't something think you sound patronizing mean. at all. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. So my fear with the Disney Plus factor and the increased money, but also like what they will want the show to... Uh, to be. Um, and again, we don't know how much creative influence they will have. The production diary in the new issue of Doctor Who magazine says that they sent the early cuts of the three specials to BBC and to Disney for notes. So it's not that they have like zero input. Um, but my concern is that we're going to lose that uh, charm, that mm-hmm. that energy that comes out because of the disparity from like how high the reach versus the the reach of its grasp. It's like that that like tension there between the ambition of what they're trying to do versus the resources that they have to pull it off. And uh, you know, the only thing that I can think of that that kind of gives me some hope about that is like, you know, if you read Russell T. Davies, The Writer's Tale, which charts the production history from like the end of series three through I think the end of the tenant specials—the things that they would have to lose for budgetary reasons, like the shadow proclamation in Journey's End or the Soul Earth or whatever—at the end of Series Four was supposed to be like a gigantic who's who of the universe and like a massive thing, and then it ended up like three aliens in like an office block or yes, something. Yeah, so they used
1: like Bill's office. We're like, it's good. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know who Bill is. I just made them up.
0: Like, like stuff like that when it's you know, here's what we actually really wanted and we had to scale it down for whatever reason. Uh, like, that's fine. I mean, it just means that, okay, like, you know, now they won't have to make those sorts of compromises. But like my, I don't even want to say fear, but like my sort of question mark, you know, in my head, is like, what will this mean for the kind of show
2: that it is, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that makes sense. my my response to that is... We just had a long conversation about the way that Disney Plus Star Wars shows look compared to the films, and how you know Andor looks compared to you know the volume shot episodes of of you know Obi Wan and stuff else. like that. So I, I think that even though we're getting a big a bigger budget, we're not getting a film budget. We're getting 10 million sure. episode, which is higher than Doctor Who has ever had, but it's by me by far not comparatively higher than like what the industry standard is for this kind of of tv making and stuff like that so i don't think that we're moving into an era where doctor who will now have the money to do whatever they want to do every time they want to do it and never have to work around it like i think i don't think that that charm is going to be completely off of it and i think honestly like you know as we just discussed with the chibnall era i think some of that charm has already kind of been sanded off a little bit because of the way the technology met what they were doing i think that like it feels like they're already trying to do a show that's visually on par with what's happening in the industry already. But the like, I think that the Chibnall era especially, the low quality of the visuals stopped being as charming as they were in Moffat, in Russell, in you know late 80s Doctor Who. I think that it's like the market nowadays will not allow it to be what it used to be. What I would, for me, I think the gold standard of what Doctor Who should try to accomplish is what Star Trek just did with Strange New Worlds, where I think Strange mm-hmm. New Worlds feels very, very much in the visual language of classic Star Trek, while also marrying it to the Discovery era technology. You know, when when the uh, Abrams movies technology was then made cheap enough to make TV shows with. I think I think Strange New Worlds feels so nostalgic for old 60s Star Trek while also feeling very modern and new. And I think if Doctor mm-hmm. Who, and I think that's what Andor is doing really well too, is Andor is really feeling like a hard-boiled 70s spy thriller that also feels like a, a show made in 2022 and 2020 and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But that's what I think Doctor Who's high watermark is. like. If, that, if that's what Doctor Who is striving for of like, How do we make a show that can use what's available to us and have all the paint in our paintbrush, but still embrace the aesthetic of what the show has always been? And, you know, we haven't talked as much about thematic stuff as I think we wanted to because we got so excited about production stuff. But at the end of the day, Doctor Who has to come down to the hearts of the series, right? It has to come down to that empathy and that love and stuff like that. And like, as long as that is still there... I think you can kind of be willing to let them have more of a bigger playground with the production because the soul of the show remains. And I think that's what's so mm-hmm. great about Strange New Worlds is Strange New Worlds really gets the soul of what Star Trek is, but is able to use a modern paintbrush for it. And I, again, Andor, Andor tells a new, it's, it's a much colder, more brutal Star Wars than we've ever seen depicted. It's like it's all the brutalism and coldness that was always there, but it's it's making it the front and center and not as much yes. the like linger the, the the glory of hope that you have in a lot of other Star Star Wars stuff, where you don't have a lot of the the Je- you have none of the Jedi mysticism that's always present in other Star Wars properties, which Michael and I can debate back and forth this good or bad, but like I, I, yeah. in, in neutral. It's now my my tangent completely off this uh, side, but I had a friend recently who I follow on Twitter, who I met, I've been on podcasts with. Who was talking about why he doesn't like Andor and the reason why is because he comes to Star Wars for Jedi mysticism, which I do as well. Like, that's that is my primary Star Wars love is, is Jedi and Sith and weird force, and like metaphysics and stuff like that. Having said that, then he said in the tweet that the, the tweet, the tweet, the tweet thread, uh, he said to himself, like, maybe someday Tony Gilroy will do a Jedi style story with this. And I'm like, you don't want that. You do not want no, like Tony Gilroy to do what Tony Gilroy does with Jedi. What makes Andor so great is that Tony Gilroy is telling a story that could easily be a a Cold War drama set in East Berlin with the exact same characters, the exact same story beats and just exchanging empire for for the Soviet Union and things like that. And like this, the way people have to compromise and and change themselves to survive. And that's why it works great. If you start giving them laser swords and and mystical force abilities, you're going to undercut the story that's being told. Like what you want is not Tony Gilroy to make a Andor like series about Jedi. You want somebody who's really good at telling those kinds of stories to do what Tony Gilroy is doing with Andor. You want like that's why like I would love if Ryan Johnson was given his trilogy we keep talking about or if Ryan Johnson was given a Star Wars TV series to be able to like Ryan Johnson all over the place. I'm trying to think of another filmmaker right now who I would love to see be given the, t- the the paintbrush of Jedi and Sith and those things and how they could work within their own visual storytelling language, but using Star Wars as a backdrop. But yeah, I think to go circle back to your original point, like I think that those are examples of what can be done with the budgets they're being given, with the space they're being put in and with the history of what the production does. And I think if Doctor Who makes that, if that's the tennis ball they hang up to look at, in this new CGI world they have, I think they'll be
1: okay.
0: Hmm. No, I think that's, I think that's really well said. I think you're, I think you're right on the money with that.
1: I think uh, sort of another way of, of summing up some of what we've been talking about, whatever this thought is, here it comes. Um, Original Doctor Who and Star Wars, like going back to El L. thesis about like Doctor Who is a, a show that crashes into other shows. And Star Wars is very much a, a movie series inspired by other movies, you know, Kurosawa, uh, uh, Main. That's the one that pops to mind, but a thousand other things too. Uh, even you know, Hakaibe John Ford westerns the, and and yes, yes, yeah. space westerns. Uh, yeah. Very much Joseph Campbell, uh, etc., yes. etc. Cetera, et cetera. Like those stories were were. I think those both franchises are really strong when they understand that it's about like crashing their show into other shows or like their franchise into other franchises. Like Andor works because it's Star Wars meets three days of the Condor, right? Three days of the Andor. Um <laughs> uh uh thank you. Um I was say I was holding on to that one for a little bit and I'm glad it worked. Uh
0: I might steal but, that for an episode th- title in the future, but
1: go for it. I I, will. <laughs> I mean you' th- your your re- I'm excited for your recap of the next couple. Um Uh, but where you run into trouble is like, I think some of the issues, but just personal opinion stuff, here we go. Um, I think some of the issues that the, the first few star Wars series, like the, the Disney stuff ran into is that, you know, it was trying, it was star Wars trying to make star Wars stories in the same way that I feel like when Dr. Who's at its weakest, it's Dr. Who trying to crash into a doctor who story. It's like, right. Like the lore is not the strongest part. I think there's like misunder. Oh, sorry. There's like misunderstanding there of that, or or not even. I don't know if it's misunderstanding. But maybe it's just my personal interest in the things. But it's like I think Andor is as strong as it is because it's not trying to be like like you've both said. It's not trying to be like a Star Wars story about Star Wars. Yeah. It's like a, a story about and and answering the thematic question we've been you know dancing around the whole time is it's like it's it's both franchises have this delicate tightrope walk of anti-fascism on one end and colonialism on the other end yes and they're always very delicately balancing those two things because you know you can both franchises pick heroes who go to worlds find things that are messed up fix them right but there's something innately colonial about that right there's imagery in both franchises that borrows from like really bad stuff like like you were talking about like the British, imperial thing but the thing that always strikes me is like the big final award scene in a new hope you know episode 4 aka original star wars like it's straight up trying for the will lenny Reef install shit like i always like to say like the reason Chewie doesn't get an award is he's like i don't i don't want to be a part of this nazi movie bullshit thank you very much Uh, like he he knows he knows the references and he's like no you know like i'm good
2: well i mean he also Uh, knows what happened when the republic came to his world Offering to save it, right? Like he knows. Yes, like yeah. he,
1: back to the colonial. Th- yes, exactly. It's like he knows. And that is, you know, some retroactive stuff there, but that's also really accurate for that. It's like he's had this innate experience with it, the, the colonial aside versus the anti fascist side.
2: I think that's probably you know, what I was going to say before we even sat down to talk today. My thought about the differences between Star Wars and Doctor Who is that on both sides, there are exceptions to this rule. I mean, obviously, Star Wars famously, like Luke wins by throwing away his sword. So that is part of it. But they still blow up the Death Star, right? So like, I Mm -hmm. think that, and like, yes, Doctor Who still blows up a fleet of Cybermen when he has to. And he does occasionally be like, yes, please kill all the Daleks before they get out of this space. That That is part of Doctor Who. But at the end of the day, Doctor Who is a story about how everybody can fix problems by sitting down and talking them out. Whereas Star Wars, is the story about you must destroy fascists at every possible turn. Like, I think, that, I think that at the end of the day, Star Wars is a much more inherently violent story and mm-hmm. much less empathetic story that does weave in this element of, like, you still have to make peace with yourself and you have to make peace with the universe around you, but you also have to oppose like totalitarianism in every corner. Whereas Doctor Who always eventually tries to come back to even the most totalitarian dictators are ultimately usually misunderstood or have some flaw. Like like, like, it's weird because Doctor. Who's primary antagonists are a Nazi allegory. like right? Like that's what the Daleks. And I think that maybe that's also different between Doctor. Who and Star Wars is that Dr. Who very much deals in allegory, whereas where Star Wars does kind of have literal totalitarianism. But like, I do think that like like at the end of the day, even in classic Doctor Who, which I think is not as high on the empathy aspect that modern Who is, like as a foreground thing, I would say, still comes down to origin of the Daleks or Genesis of the Daleks, where Dr. Tom Baker is like, I do not have the right to stop the Daleks from existing at the beginning of their you know, creation. Like, I don't have the right to connect these two strands and, and eradicate and create a, create a genocide. Right. Star Wars in the very first movie is like, yes, we should blow up this world killing space station so it can't kill more worlds. And everybody who's on that station, their life is sacrificed because they've worked for this organization and we're not even going to think twice. Like We're going to celebrate it and be happy about it. And I, I don't think either point of view is necessarily wrong, but they are very extreme approaches to often the same type of enemy and foe.
1: It's it's something else. say never talks about it's the gun versus frock debate. It it never right. ends. It's always going to be guns versus frocks. Which no, that's
0: like, actually very huh. well put. It's it's almost in the titles, right? It's like Star Wars, and mm-hmm. you know, Doctor, Doctor Who, Who? Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they're broadly, vaguely, you know, kind of anti-authoritarian, even though the soil that they grew in, like, definitely has those imperialist and colonialist. Yeah you know, histories. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I do think is interesting, like, and this is something that I'm sure that I crib from Elle but when she talks about that moment in Genesis of the Daleks, where uh, Tom Baker, he has to decide whether or not he is going to completely wipe out the Daleks once and for all. And he has the very famous, do I have that right speech? He doesn't make a decision that he does not have the right. He's asking the question and then he gets interrupted because he waited too long. Right. And you could argue that he, he then later on has decided that he made a mistake back then because he does destroy Scaro in remembrance of the Daleks. And later, later on, he destroys the Daleks and the Time Lords in the Time War. So Well, so it's actually he, he
2: saved the Time Lords <laughs> and the Daleks destroyed each other. So you,
1: know, you, could, you could say
2: that that's and also and also I'm gonna say that he didn't do a very good job destroying the Daleks. <laughs> like but yeah, yeah, yeah he, fair re- enough. He really with, blew it. <laughs> I mean, I think it's weird because I think that it's not that Star Wars necessarily has a single authorial language. Maybe it does during the Lucas era, but I, I would think say it used to. And now it does. It doesn't. Yeah. And you're getting, whereas, like, I think Doctor Who more so has always mm-hmm. handed off its voice to a new. Doctor Who has much more of a comic book thing of like, this writer has the show for this period of time and this is their time with the show. And then anything you that there are there are some themes that are consistent throughout, perhaps, but it is always a new voice telling a similar story. Yes. Until today. Yes. You you I think have hit the nail on the head. Like that that is a very important
0: distinction that hadn't occurred to me, but you're absolutely right. Like the authorial voice of Doctor Who
2: is never consistent. Even in classic era, Terrence Dix and Robert Holmes had very, very different points of view about Doctor yeah. Who and some of the best eras are when they're almost having an argument about what Doctor Who should mm-hmm. be because they, yeah. they change roles they go back and forth they write you know sometimes one of them is a script editor and the other one's writing episodes and vice versa right. and I think that makes like I I appreciate both of what they're bringing to the, I, think, I think when I first watched Classic Who I was a Robert Holmes fan I think having gone through and like really seen how they both do things, I kind of like the Terrence takes Robert Holmes dichotomy of Star of, of Doctor Who. No, you're exactly right. Like, like, that's a very good example, like the
0: tension between them and just the different eras in conversation with other eras. It's like Doctor Who is very much this kind of accidentally great thing that is always sort of running with whatever it has at the moment. It's like, OK, well, we need to produce another six stories of television for the next six months. We just got to make it happen. And it's very interesting things come out of that. Rewrite the essential like lore or the origin of where the doctor comes from. Uh, Robert Holmes actually does. He rewrites himself a couple of times versus Star Wars, which I mean, like you pointed out up until the recent era was very much this one singular vision from one person.
2: Yeah. Um, I I mean, I would say the classic trilogy is more collaborative than, but yeah, it springs from his mind and then is working with a lot of collaborators to make it, whereas then the prequels are very much his vision. And then then I think, and then even Clone Wars, you kind of start seeing, like, it started out George Lucas's vision still and then kind of got handed off to people as he kind of pulled away from it a little bit. Yeah, I don't think we really get that level of um, contentious Star Wars storytelling until Last Jedi, and I think that I think that Last Jedi, and I think that, and that might be part of why it was so, you know, aside from the toxic reasons why it was rejected, I think part of the reasons why people who are like good people who didn't like it are people who had come up with like, Star Wars has always been very much one thing, and this thing is trying to kind of like deconstruct that a little bit, and I don't like that. Um, I do, I'm I'm speaking for some, I love Last Jedi, but speaking for their voices, but I also think like, the only projects aside from Last Jedi that I think are still really doing that are, I think that, and or absolutely, I think to a lesser degree, Obi-Wan was starting to do a little bit. And then I think that, I think there's a lot of that in the High Republic. I think the High Republic's doing a great job of recontextualizing the height of the Republic as also being like, it's, it's really going, okay, well, if this organization is this like corrupt and infallible by the time George Lucas got to the prequels, it didn't just start that way. Like, let's go to a period yeah. of time where Republic is kind of like, and like, it's it's fascinating reading those books because I I went into them thinking like oh cool I get to see stories of Jedi at their you know most you know heroic and at the height of their like largest and the, the shockingly those books do a great job at yes depicting that but also pointing out how much of it is a lie and how much of it's a false facade because I think one of the most fascinating things about Star Wars is the fact that the Jedi are always wrong like the Jedi. The Jedi's belief system about attachments is proven wrong in every era of like Star Wars that we know of. And yet they stick to it. And, And we're even seeing it with Mandalorian where even Ahsoka, who has been burned by the Jedi, is even she saying he's too attached to you or whatever. And yet every single time a Jedi character is victorious, it's because they lean into their attachments. It's why Luke is able to defeat Luke and Vader are able to defeat Palpatine it's why Ray is able to defeat Palpatine because she cares about the people in her life that matter to her it's why ahsoka is able to defeat you know temporarily not fully but Anakin in you know the the temple because it's like in in Rebels everybody talks about ahsoka's line of I am no Jedi and they, the problem is they always take it completely out of context and they just use it as like yeah she's rejecting being a Jedi no she's not what she's doing in that scene and like I was so glad because, because Michael's greatest enemy, Dave Filoni, said this in an interview to some degree.
1: Um, I hope we're not enemies. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> he,
2: he said it in an interview around when she first appeared on Mandalorian. And I was like pumping my fists in triumph. People still quote that line incorrectly. But Ahsoka says, I am no Jedi. But the context she's saying it in is Anakin. She says to Anakin, like she says to Vader. Says, Vader says Anakin is dead. She says, then I will avenge him. And he's like, Vengeance is not a Jedi trait. And she says, I am no Jedi. That is Ahsoka psyching herself up to believe that she has what it takes to kill this person she's fighting. And like she does, I don't think she means it. I think she's trying to say, like, I won't hesitate. But then what happens in that same fight is the second the mask breaks, both physically and metaphorically, and you have that brief moment of. Anakin reaching out to her the same way he does to Obi-Wan in the Obi-Wan series. And says like Ahsoka, the second that happens, her entire position on the move- motion, like she, she has mercy for him again. That is her Jedi coming back to her. And it's like, it's, it is such a thing of like, I, I have, I, I could go on for a long time and I have done it already about how Ahsoka is the best Jedi at being a Jedi. Because she's let go of the attachment to being a Jedi that the Jedi have. So like she she epitomizes the ideal of what a good Jedi is because she's not a Jedi, quote unquote, in a way that like, like I think Obi-Wan's maybe like the closest you can get to it of someone who's actually a Jedi. But now I'm rambling, I'm sorry. But like, yeah, no, I, I love think it. Right. I think that like it's it's kind of fascinating that Star Wars has gone on for as long as it has by having a protagonist group that is inherently wrong at the center of it and never felt like they have to. I I remember I was thinking like how I really wish that Luke's Jedi school would have like leaned into that a little bit more, but it's like, oh yeah, if it had, then it would still be around and, and, and like Ben wouldn't have broken and he wouldn't have come out. Like, like, and if you do a future Jedi stuff after like the sequel era and you do lean into that as being with the Jedi, like now you have to change what the conflict is in the story because if they figure it out, like there's not really much conflict left. So it's it's well, so yeah. so what's really interesting
0: about what you just said and ties into like the authorial voicing is I don't know that George Lucas realized how flawed the Jedi philosophy was. I think mm-hmm. he he knew that they had kind of started to lose their way, but I think he really believed that Jedi at the end of the day were inherently good and correct in what they were doing. it's 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 just that uh, they weren't right for the moment and were destroyed. Like I think he maybe had a blind spot in certain respects where I think his own vision for what, they were and why they fell and what their flaws potentially were i think was a little muddled because i think the story dictated that they had to mess up and create anakin and allow for the rise of the empire but i think he was so in love with his own creation that that he wasn't able to present them as wrong if that makes any sense
2: yeah i'm curious because i i don't know what side of that position I fall down on because I, I think there's times where I feel like you do and there's times where I feel like there's depth and it's hard because I'm so clouded now by having watched the Clone Wars series that I I right. don't know like like a lot of my feelings on the prequels are now informed by the the like scaffolding at Clone Wars built under the prequels to hold it up a little bit better like, exactly. like I, but I do think like there are things in Revenge of the Sith especially where I do feel like he's at least implying that they their own arrogance or their own um like hubris led to their own downfall to some degree. Like I do think like, sure, but there are elements of it where it's like, is he saying that, or is he saying that Palpatine did a great job of making Anakin think that like, there's a really good, it's right. Hard to tell. Um, Cause I think it's, yeah. I, I want to give George a little more credit towards it than just like blanketly being like, Oh, he accidentally stumbled on this weird, like, flawed government the only thing i'll say is he does seem to know a lot about his feelings on imperialism and things like that when he makes the original trilogy so i like i do think that he's bringing that into the prequels as well but maybe not as nuanced as we think it might have intended to be intended to be and how it's become since then as people have reacted to it i would agree with that yeah completely i think think that comes into dr who very well too because i think that like i think the british point of view on their own imperialism really evolved and grew over the course of the while past. doctor who was on yeah yes yeah right yeah classic and modern no no 100 like i think in the 60s people writing doctor who very much were the mindset of like we were great and the nazis sucked and that's like like because they're all they're all people who lived during world war ii you know to some degree uh, even if they were ch- especially if they were children because if you're a child in world war ii you very much have the mindset of like we were this we were the good guys Nazis were the bad guys and then you get into that no empire area ex-empire area of of the UK and you get through the like 60s and 70s and into the 80s of the Margaret Thatcher era like you're you're viewing the UK in your own country same way like in America like I think like can you imagine someone like Independence Day like if that movie was made now how very different it would feel to have a speech at the end of a movie that's like that jingoistic i don't think you could do it nowadays maybe i mean i think now you get you get marvel movies where even though they're being funded by the u.s military and they're very much tools of u.s military like like you know propaganda you still also have to have stuff like like hidden hydra agents within the u.s government and you have to have characters like captain america who definitely does not just jingoistically follow the american ideal it's very fascinating how much more even even the like good guys and bad guys type stories have to then still have shades of gray with government because the audience doesn't trust the government the way they used to. It's really interesting.
1: No, yeah, that is, if, I feel like you could, you're right. Like if Steve Rogers was like independence day as a global holiday, people would still be like, now it would be like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> yeah, me. Steve Rogers. He like, he was looked, like
2: He was like, the, the one work. Yeah.
1: Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, fascinating. A, you're absolutely right.
0: No, it's incredibly fascinating. I think there's a whole other episode in there, um, certainly for Star Wars. But um, final question, just to close things out. You have to take one season of Doctor Who and one Star Wars film or TV series with you to a desert island. What are you taking?
1: I have my answers, but after you, (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised how quickly I I know. But like uh, for me, it'd be uh, uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi because I just I like it a lot um and uh doctor who series nine because it is like the best of i think the modern era in my opinion series nine just has like has it all uh mostly it has heaven sent which i could just watch every day oh Oh, come on just kiss like oh maybe i would take rogue one i don't know that's hard
2: the problem with rogue one is you're already on desert island do you really want to watch that scare of scene over and over again on a desert island
1: Oh, that's a really good, good that's point. Ooh. Uh, I
2: mean, I mean, granted that's like really good that that scene alone, like that movie really shows you what Gilray can do once. I, mean, he, I know he wrote it, he didn't direct it, but still like when you get to Andor because I I never after Rogue One thinking like this is the best depiction of a Star War that I've ever seen in Star Wars. Like this is, I, like yeah, yes. Yes.
1: I think to this day Rogue One is the best dogfights in the franchise. Yeah. Like the best fighter to fighter combat stuff. And juxtapose
2: with One. the commando stuff exactly. happening on the ground like the special exactly. forces essentially, not intentionally special forces mm-hmm. but, you know, mm-hmm. I I do love that the comics retconned it so that like Rogue Squadron is literally named after Rogue One and like literally like yeah, they're 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 doing what they're doing in the name of Jinner. so I muah, perfect. I Hell There's yeah. a, the, the comic series where that happens. Is, is maybe my favorite of the mainline Star Wars comics where I forget the name of the planet now that like betrays them. And it's towards the end of the post New Hope going into Empire run of the Star Wars comics. There's this really, really great arc where they basically like, there's this planet that has a very like, I forget the name of it now, top of my head, because I'm really, despite having written multiple Star Wars books, I'm really bad at pulling names and, and trivia for anything. But like, they're like this planet that, like, builds ships, essentially, and they, like, they make an alliance with them, but they've actually been working for Vader this whole time, like, the like the queen of this world is, like, ba- basically Vader's puppet, and she basically betrays the rebellion, and so then they're, like, about to have this huge battle, and all their ships locked down, and they can't control them anymore, because it's been, like, this, like, weird, and it becomes, this like, this desperate fight to, like, get out of this battle now, and, like, Luke jumps in, like, Luke is flying, and he's, like, recently learned about what happened that Rogue One, at like, like it's supposed to have just happened in the story. And so then he like names, he's like, okay, well in honor of Jen Erso and what happened at Scarif, we're going to call ourselves like, I guess, I guess, well, yeah, it would be after Rogue One because it's after the new hope. Well, Star they got Wars, the plans, yeah. Right. yeah. But it's, 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 it's my favorite of, of that era of, 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 uh, I think it's like close to the end of Kieran Gillen's run writing the comics and it's just it's just a truly cinematic comic book art. uh
0: no, I love that. I actually need to finish uh the issues of that run that I never got to because I'm very bad keeping up with
2: it's so good. Uh, it's comics. just so good. Um, it's so
0: tense. It's no, but thank you for the recommendation. For me, season of Doctor Who, if I'm taking it to Desert Island, I would be either season thirteen of Tom Baker with, you know pyramids of Mars and and brain of Morbius or season 17. If we're including Shada If we're not including Shada, then season 13 of Tom Baker. I don't know. Like that's just my doctor who comfort food. I think, you know, city of death is probably, it's just so watchable and just so much fun.
1: Oh yeah. That sometimes I just pop that on for fun. It's a great, it works as a movie.
0: Yes. No, it's, it's, it's so good. I love city of death. Star Wars. Uh, I've. I probably. I guess if I'm on a desert island, I'm gonna want comfort food, and I think I probably go with Return of the Jedi, even though it's far from my, my my favorite Star Wars film.
1: And they escape from a desert right at the start. So yeah, that's it's true. Yeah, very so, aspirational. Yeah. That's a good pick.
0: It's very. Um. It's very comfortable for me. I love. I have a soft spot in my heart for. Uh, for Return of the Jedi. Riley, do you have an answer to this impossible question that I Yeah, so
2: before I give my answer, I will say that the the planet I was talking about is called Shutorin. And the arc of the Star Wars comics is volume nine, Hope Dies. It's very good. It is Hope Dies oh, in cool. the Escape and the Scourging of Shoutorin, which is like a three part arc. And it's really good and it and it's set up during Volume Seven, The Ashes of Jeddah. But like it's a really good hmm. it's just the Hope Dies, especially is the one that I think is just chef's kiss so i recommend no it that. sounds awesome yeah. i'm, I'm definitely um I, I probably would have said series nine as well but if i'm gonna like imagine that there's only one copy of them and michael took them with him to his island and i had a <laughs> different series oh no um, i would probably so say dumb. series five which is moffat's first five. season at where yeah, and it's funny because i matt smith was, a, was never my favorite doctor for a while i think he was my least favorite of the modern doctors but he's come around on me but I think that as far as a season of Doctor Who that is almost consistently good every episode and has a lot of unique stuff happening in it and has a pretty solid arc over the course of the season. And you've also got some of some of the best episodes of his era all in one season. I think that would also my favorite Christmas special. So if I can bring that with me, which is is Christmas Carol, if I can bring those together. Um, The only episode that I think I would miss is that I think Doctor's Wife is in season six, not season five. Otherwise, I would be really excited to have had all of that. But I think that, yeah, because you've got, I think the 11th hour is possibly the best new Doctor episode of the modern era. Um, It's a great episode to start people with if they're like, if you don't know what people, if you're bringing a new viewer in. I always, it's gotten a little bit wonky now because of the Chibnall era, but I used to always say, you should. I had almost my own version of the machete cut to make it Star Wars appropriate. Right. I would say start with season five, watch all the way through the end of season seven, and then before you watch Day of the Doctor, then you go back and watch Eccleston's through tenants and then you come to Day of the Doctor once he gets the end of it. Nice. That's great. And I, I think part of it, because a lot of people, like talking about the effects and the quality of the filmmaking earlier, a lot of people were turned off from 2005 when they first started watching because It's so janky compared to modern tv but i think if you watch it after you've already fallen in love with doctor who it has that charm exactly you're talking about and you get into it right so that was my whole thing so i think that would be my it's it's funny because i my favorite pouty is my doctor like there's no there's no ifs ands, or buts about it capality is my doctor but i would say as far as just if you're talking about if you're if you're taking season nine off the table for me to choose from then the next one i would go with season five because i think that that's those are Moffat's best two seasons by far as a writer for the show, as, as a showrunner. No, I agree. Um, certainly, it's S- like a whole unit for sure. Star Wars wise, if I had to pick a TV series, if I, if I could pick a TV series, I would probably say Clone Wars because there's so much variety and stuff to choose from. But that feels like a cheat based on what the assignment was. It's a lot so of Star if Wars. If I had to take a movie, I think last Jedi, I feel like is the one that there's like enough interesting things happening. And we'll always do something new and fun to do. But honestly, I think I got to go with the first star Wars. I think there's just something about, um, I along, not unlike you said with, with return of a Jedi where it's just really fun. I think, I think there's just something about that, that first story. First of all, the fact that it's so extremely self-contained, you don't, mm-hmm. I, I think the problem with bringing in last Jedi or empire strikes back, or really almost any other star Wars movie is there is that feeling of like, Oh, but now I can't watch what came before or what came after. Like I can't watch the setup or the finale. I, I, with a new hope I can watch it from beginning to end. And that's it. That's the whole story. And you don't need anything else ever again. It's great. It's great as a star Wars fan that we got it, but it's there. And so I think that would probably be mine.
0: No, those are two great answers. Um, Yeah. I want us all to be on the same desert island so we can all, uh, have our, have our picks. Um, well, I really want to thank both of you for participating in this discussion. It was, it was a fever dream of mine to have both of you on for this topic. And I'm so, I'm so glad that, uh, we were able to make it happen. And I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about. But, uh, but Riley wouldn't stop um, talking about everything that came to her mind. So we
2: lost the whole thing. No, no, no.
1: Oh, that's I, why
0: you're here. What are you
1: no, talking that's about? why
0: you're here. I love it. The whole <laughs> the whole reason to be here is is to talk. I mean, that's I mean, that's the name of the game. Um, But I want to tee up the game of Rassilon so we can plug it. So, Michael, I mean, or Riley, what is the game of Rassilon and where can people find it?
1: Uh, The Game of wrestling is a Doctor Who role-playing game podcast. Uh, We have four seasons now. We've just released our fourth uh, season finale. We have a Doctor Who special, Doctor Who Day special coming up in a little bit, and also a Christmas special. Uh, so keep an ear out for those. Uh, But yeah, we have uh, four whole seasons of fun, spontaneous Doctor Who adventures. Uh, The first three years, it was myself and uh, Ben Patton coming up with the scenarios, and Riley was our doctor, and we challenged her to a variety of universe risking thingies, whatever, Doctor Who stuff, and then uh, uh, the show has regenerated much like uh, the series does, and Riley has uh, wonderfully stepped into the shoes as Game Missy, uh, and we've been coming up with a whole new era of scenarios together that have been really, really fun. Uh, and we've uh, we're already planning for series five, which is is going to be five seasons. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be big. We'll find out.
2: Yeah, it's been an honor to do it. It was really fun switching up. It was it was an honor to play the Doctor. I loved doing it. Shockingly, my Doctor talked a lot. Um, but um, <laughs> it's been really cool. I was some of the best been... features in the book. Ben asked me I because I had said it about the beginning of our third season. I had said, like, I think I'm about ready to hang up the coat and let somebody else be the doctor. So our our player, Dan Peck, who was my companion during my era, is now our doctor. And at one point, about a month or two later, Ben and Michael kind of like took me aside and said, you know, we hate you. We hate everything you stand for, but we respect the worst. Can't
1: Um, can't stand. uh, Oh, my God. And Ben had said, like,
2: you know, because I had run a one off for our Patreon subscribers. That was based on class, very loosely. It's more based on Scooby Doo than class, but they use class as an excuse to make it. But Ben had said, like, "Hey, you kind of had fun GMing, and it was an interesting take. Would you be wanting to take over as as GM?" And so uh, I, I said yes. And so, but it's it's just a blast working on the show with Michael. I think Michael and I have had some really fun times clicking up uh, different scenarios to throw at them and, and playing together. And I, I, I love the way Michael's brain works, and so I love collaborating with him. No, yeah. I love what you guys put out. I
0: said at the top, it's the best Doctor Who RPG show that's out there. And it may be the only one. No, (laughs) no, no, it's not. There are others. But but, I mean, it is the only Doctor Who podcast that I listen to. I mean, for whatever that's worth. Um, And where can we find
2: both of you online? Or do you have anything else that uh, you guys want to plug? I'll plug the books. I mean, I have written three Star Wars books that came out this year. um, So check those out. Somewhat relevant yeah. to the, uh, the topic of the show. Yeah. yeah, so I have Exploring Tatooine, which is an illustrated guide to the planet of Tatooine. I have uh, Galaxy's Edge Treasures from Batuu, which is like a fun little tchotchke book full of little trinkets and stuff that are Galaxy's Edge oriented. And then I have, if this is coming out in the near future, you have Time Still uh, that came out this year is there's a pop-up advent calendar book. that's It's, technically you don't have it in time for Life Day, but you can still get it for the actual advent season. And it's it's basically... It's a, it's a tree of life that pops out and then there's a bunch of little like ornaments that are inside of it that you can hang from it every day. And you know, so it's a Worcester tree, and then it has the ornaments that go around it, and there's a little like booklet in there that I that I wrote. It's a lot of summarizing a lot of other life day content, but the thing that I had the most fun doing was describing all the ornaments that go on the tree, which I got to do on my own. So
1: that was fun.
0: Oh, that's very cool. I think I'm actually gonna get that from my sister. I think she would love that.
2: Yeah, probably.
1: Is there a B Arthur ornament?
2: Um, I don't (laughs) think there is, but I, if you want to, there, there is, there is the ability, I think, to draw your own ornament. So you could put her into it if you wanted to. Um, yeah, (laughs) they they basically like, I think around 2020, 2021, like 2020 ish, I think Disney realized like, Hey, we have a built-in Christmas thing in our IP. Exactly. Let's use it. And so then in 2021, a bunch of life day content came out. There were comic books. There's a life day treasury book and stuff like that. And then also if you go to galaxy's edge now, there's like dolls of of Chewbacca holding a Life Day orb, and so it they've done as the much to bring back Life Day as a thing without actually bringing back the Life Day special. Like it is very much like <laughs> the special yeah. is very much non canonical, but the characters from it are canonical. And so, like you know, I almost said itchy and scratchy, but yeah, like like the the it, itchy and, and itchy and all, lumpy itchy yeah. and lumpy are part of the story, and so they're they are, great, are, but they're not it. they're not yeah. So it's. It's fun. It's really cute. And you can find me on on the socials mostly at Riley J Silverman on Instagram. I'm just Riley Silverman, but I'm on if Twitter still exists by the time you hear this. I'm on Twitter as Riley J Silverman, <laughs> and I'm on TikTok as Riley J Silverman. Well,
0: um, Michael Nixon, Riley Silverman, thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation. I could talk to I could talk to the both of you for hours and hours and hours. So please, there's an open invitation. Both of you are are welcome anytime. You have an itch to talk about anything Star Wars. If you like what you heard please visit trashcompod.com where you can read transcripts of this episode and all of our other episodes. We are Trash Compod across all social media and we will see you on the next one.